My name is Paola Bella. I'm a Wemba Wemba Gunditjmara woman. I'm an academic PhD candidate and lecturer at Victoria University. My name's Claire Land. I'm a non-Aboriginal historian and sociologist with a particular interest in Aboriginal resistance. We're starting this episode in 1839 with a ship crashing through the waves of Bass Strait en route for Melbourne from Tasmania. Or as it were in 1839, Port Phillip from Van Diemen's Land. Colonisation of Van Diemen's Land began 26 years prior, in 1803. It's unknown how many Aboriginal people were killed in the process. Many Aboriginal peoples in Tasmania, and I hate to sum this up so quickly because that's not my mob down there, so I always say with great sensitivity and respect, but many of the survivors of the massacres were rounded up and placed on Flinders Island, and many of them then came into contact with the so-called Aborigines, a protector at the time, um, and that was George Augustus Robinson. George Augustus Robinson had managed to suggest that he was a good candidate to be the protector of Aborigines in Victoria and wanted to bring some companions with him from Tassie who he thought might help him to strike up communication with Kulin Nation and other other nations of Aboriginal people in, on the mainland. And he, he managed to convince authorities to let him bring about 16 people with him, 16 Aboriginal people from Tassie. And at this point, there were about 100 remaining Aboriginal people in Tassie out of all the nine nations. So it was a pretty significant group that he, that he took with him. In 2015, Claire and Paola were involved in curating an exhibition about two of the Aboriginal men brought to Victoria by Robinson, Tanaminawait and Morbohina. I spoke with them earlier this year over Zoom. Tanaminawait and Morbohina were two out of a group of five who took off out of Melbourne into the Dandenongs and, and Western Port area of Victoria, the sort of Bunwurrung area, and accompanying them were Trubanini, Fanabina and Pitya Runner. So those were three women. So you'll note Trubanini, I mean, she's the most famously known Aboriginal person from Tassie. She was amongst this group of five. It's believed that the group took off in search of one of their countrymen who had disappeared in the region in the year or so prior. That That's one of the reasons I think that they went, but there were five members of the group and I think they all probably had a range of motives for leaving Melbourne. They were pretty sick of George Augustus Robinson by that time. Some of them had had experience working elsewhere and thought perhaps they could get jobs. It's possible that they were heading to the southernmost point of the mainland of being Wilson's Prom and actually hoping to get home. It, It could have been that because of what they had seen in Tassie and the genocidal nature of the land war, they could see this unfolding again in Victoria and were just so devastated as you would be by that, that they just wanted to do anything they could to aid their their cause. One of the greatest stories of evasion and tactical strategic movement across the colony took place. This group, as they're moving around the colony, they were raiding settlers' huts. They were taking weapons, they were taking food and flour. And so posters started to appear all over the colony that this wild band of, you know, black savages was on the run and rewards were put out for their capture. 
I think that it was actually mistaken identity when they did kill two people, two men who happened to be walking in the vicinity of a coal mine which was managed by a guy called Watson, yeah, near Cape Patterson. From what I saw in the records, my belief is that they were looking for Probe Latena, the man who was missing, and they had heard that he had died at the hands of Watson and it was Watson's coal mine that they were on at the time. I mean, they had just raided his hut and burnt it down as well. So um, it was a volatile situation. Watson was looking around and had had guns and, and, was, and they knew that they would be shot on site if he found them first. Not long after the killings, the five were captured and Tanaminawait and Mobohina were charged with murder. The three women were charged as accessories. Tanaminawait and Mobohina were appointed a defence lawyer, a 28-year-old man who at the time was relatively unknown. But now he's arguably the most well-known judge in the history of the Supreme Court of Victoria. And his name is synonymous with Melbourne. Redmond Barry. This episode is about him. And they shall be heard. And they shall be heard. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. Nothing, 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 nothing. Nothing but the truth. The trial of Tanaminawait and Morbohina was heard in 1841. Barry was 28 years old. He was quite junior at the time, I think, and, you know, he did his best. He did make an effort to defend them, but there were some some practices at the time that weren't in their favour as well around who could give evidence. Aboriginal people weren't allowed to give evidence, even though they were allowed to be convicted on their own confessions. They weren't tried by a jury of their peers. Barry tried to argue that they were aliens, that they weren't British subjects, and therefore they should be tried by a jury that included aliens. He also questions the legal basis of British authority over Aboriginal people. But ultimately, it was all for naught. Tanaminawait and Morbohina were found guilty of murder. There was a bit of popular support for these guys in the sense that they were in a pretty difficult situation and you could kind of understand what led to this. And Barry did put that up in in their defence. He said, look, these guys have been through a lot. They've seen frontier violence. And they're, they're in a pretty difficult situation. They've been brought over here to Melbourne from their homelands and you might want to be more forgiving towards them. The jury, while they found the men guilty, they did say that they didn't think that capital punishment should be inflicted. They didn't think that these guys should be hanged. And so they recommended to the judge that that should be the case. The judge then forwarded his thoughts on this issue to Latrobe Charles Latrobe had just been appointed superintendent of the Port Phillip district, a position he would hold for 12 years before being appointed Victoria's first lieutenant governor. So the judge said to Latrobe, look, I don't think we should at all be merciful. And Latrobe agreed and he sent a communication to the governor in Sydney, also conveying he didn't think any mercy should be shown. And so they did end up being hanged. And they say that on the day that they did hang them, half of that colony showed up. So they say anywhere between five and 6,000 people witnessed the hanging of Tanaminawait and Mopahina. 
They brought picnic blankets, they brought food, there were vendors selling flowers and beer. They were paraded through the city where people threw rotten fruit and vegetables at them. They were taken to the corner of Franklin and Bowen Streets um, where the gallows were erected. How the gallows were erected and who got to hang them was quite horrific too. It was basically a competition. So people could put, put in to win the opportunity to hang them publicly. So it was very crude. It was very ugly. It was very barbaric. Tanaminawait and Mōbohina were the first people hanged in Port Phillip by the government after a trial. They were two of only six people hanged in public before executions began to take place inside a jail. It's almost 200 years later, so we're talking in hindsight. But what do you think of Barry's arguments? I actually think they were quite progressive for the time. You know, when you work in these areas as an Aboriginal person, you know, you're working professionally, but you also are carrying your own, you carry your culture into this. Your family teaches you what school doesn't teach you. Your family teaches you that your people resisted and fought back and that this was not a passive invasion and takeover. So when you're reading through historical documents and you find one where rarely and surprisingly a white person is actually presenting a view that is not about annihilating an Aboriginal person or either relegating us to the past as a dying race or as less than human. He was a man who was professionally, to the best of his abilities, making a very common sense and very balanced argument that the trial was not being conducted in their first language, so it wasn't fair. How could they possibly understand the the complexity of the law that was being presented to them? So I found that so fascinating that he had those views at the time. It really interested me. When I started at Melbourne Uni, I was 18, the library was the Redmond Barry Library. And I remember that's the first time I ever saw that name and I, I, I never really looked into his name. I just took it as another dead white man's name on a building at the University of Melbourne. And then, you know, discovering his statue and, and where it stood and that most people, you know, kind of take monuments for granted. You sort of walk past them and... There's a lack of monumentation of Aboriginal people and Aboriginal people's sacrifices. So when their story, when Tana Minowait Morpahina's story was memorialised and I got the chance to curate an exhibition about it, it was such an honour. But it also made me realise that when I was speaking to people, kind of informally interviewing them, saying, you know, so what do you know about Redmond Barry and, and the statue and do you know where it is? Most people said no. So... They kind of would just walk past it. People that worked in the building adjacent to the statue in the library had just no clue. I think there's a disconnect from history in this country and I think it's one of those stories that he sort of becomes a bit of a footnote to Ned Kelly, unfortunately. When we started producing Gertie's Law and interviewing judges and legal experts, Sir Redmond Barry's name just kept popping up we quickly realised that Barry was worthy of his own episode. Indeed, he's probably best known for sentencing Ned Kelly to death. But you know what? That might actually be the least interesting thing about him. Redmond Barry is part of the Anglo-Irish, so he's Protestant. Uh, He's a family of 13. His father was a general. Some of his other brothers went into the army. Redmond Barry was meant to have gone into the army, but he was born in 1813. And so by the time he became an adult, the British army was being made smaller because the Napoleonic Wars had finished and everything like that. 
Joanne Boyd is one of the court's archivists and, as is likely evident, is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the history of this place. So he looked around and decided he'd become a lawyer. So he was born in Ireland and he went, you had to go to London in those days and he completed his legal studies in London and then went back and was admitted to the Irish bar as well as the English bar. As it happens, his father died about the time he was finishing his legal studies. So with the small inheritance he got from his dad, he travelled out to Australia because we needed lawyers. He was originally meant to go to Sydney, in fact, did land in Sydney, But there was a slight problem about that Sydney trip, wasn't there? There was. Nicole Lithgow, also a quad archivist and a bit of an expert on Barry. He um, can't see it from looking at pictures of him today, but he must have had some charisma (laughs) because he uh, managed to have a fairly overt, fairly intimate relationship with a lady on board the steamship that he was on. Her name was Mrs Scott and uh, her husband, Mr Scott, wasn't all that impressed with that and he spent quite a bit of the journey locked in his cabin in order to um, uh, keep him from getting to Mrs Scott. <laughs> oh, no, it's extraordinary. I mean, one of the things you should remember is he was only 26 at the time. But anyway, he, when the, um, their ship landed in Sydney... He didn't go off the ship for a day or two and he was in such disgrace that he wasn't received by the governor for quite a while either. And then this is the late 1830s. So they suggested that instead of staying in Sydney where his you know name wasn't good, go down to that lovely new colony in the district of Port Phillip. So he, he journeyed on and came down here. In 1939, when Barry arrived in Melbourne, most ships could tie up in the Yarra, they tied up at the dock, which is where the Immigration Museum now is. And uh, there was an informal market square there where dealers could auction off supplies and luxuries brought in by the ships. And then he would have gone on to Collins Street. Michael Cathcart is a historian and broadcaster. He would have waded through streets if it was raining because the roads were like porridge. But a city was already taking shape. Some of the buildings were very flimsy and wooden. But in 1839, the year he arrived, the Melbourne Club was founded. The first Princess Bridge was opened the following year. There were doctors and lawyers, a bank, a post office, a printing office. About 8,000 people would be in Melbourne by 1842. And there are rampant commercial interests at work. Everyone is here to make money. People who bought blocks of land in Melbourne in 1837 were selling them for 100 times as much by the time Barry arrived, uh, there was crime, there was drunkenness, there was squalor, there was poor sanitation. But in the midst of all this, there were some leaders who had a sense of building a city governed by the rule of law and by strong civic institutions. As soon as Barry landed in Port Phillip, he joins the Victorian Bar. It was only a very small bar. I think there was about only four or five of them. I think he got his first brief about two weeks after he landed and off he went. When he landed in Melbourne, there was no Supreme Court yet. So he just had to take some work in the lower courts uh, because there was no Supreme Court for him to practice in. But he did do a lot of work for Indigenous peoples. He called them the natives in one of his books. Um, And he did do a lot of work for them early on as well. He was fairly progressive for his day and he retained that interest in the Indigenous people all throughout his life. But he was certainly, um, yeah, fairly liberal in his views. Barry defended Tanaminawate and Mōbohina. He had been appointed as standing counsel for Aborigines, a bit like a public defender role. I'm not sure he achieved 
very much justice for them, but he certainly tried to. He was he was certainly on their side and was progressive in his understanding of Aboriginal dispossession. And as Barry's name became more known, he started to climb the legal career ladder pretty rapidly. He was the Commissioner of the Court of Requests, and that was the civil thing for matters under £10. And so he used to settle those, and apparently he did that quite professionally and and, um, studiously. He also was, for a very short time, he was the Solicitor General for the newly separated colony of Victoria. But that didn't last very long because that happened in 1851. And then um, in 1852, he was made the first puny judge of the Supreme Court under the Chief Justiceship of Sir William Beckett. A puny judge is a judge of a superior court, like the Supreme Court or the High Court but ranked below the Chief Justice. Shortly after that, I think it was the same year, they got a second puny judge, Williams, uh, Williams, Justice Williams, and so uh, Justice Redmond Barry became the senior puny judge, um, a role which he then retained until his death in 1880. Yeah, he was also the acting Chief Justice every now and again. Poor old Sir William Beckett was what was called in those days an invalid. He was certainly in a wheelchair by the end of his life. Sounded a little bit like a muscular dystrophy. So um, Reverend Merrin used to be the acting Chief Justice. And even back in the 1850s, judges still went on circuit visiting regional towns to hear cases, just like judges do now. So they used to travel by railway up to, say, Ballarat, Santos, Bendigo. Barry also had a a penchant for when he did turn up, he'd open libraries Mm. and things like that, or donate books, or say, or their mechanics institutes and things like that. Yes, he was very big on that. He did seem to have a real love for libraries. Mm. Oh, yeah. He would have been better off as a librarian. And I think he went to one of the early conferences of the what's called the Jewett Classification Scheme and everything like that, about how they would put the books in order and everything like that. The one, of, In fact, one of the people that signs his, witnesses his will is actually one of the librarians. It's the Supreme Court librarian, actually. It's shut. Mm. It's witnesses his will. Mm. In fact, Melburnians have Barry to thank for, at least partly, one of Melbourne's most wonderful institutions. My name's Des Cowley and I'm the Principal Librarian of the History of the Book and Arts at State Library of Victoria. I met with Des back in 2019 and in case you're wondering what the construction noise in the background is, the library was putting its final touches on a beautiful renovation. Barry was absolutely seminal to this institution. The foundation stone was laid in 1854 and Barry was the um, president uh, of the trustees right through until his death. And and what's interesting, I mean, we think of this as an enormous place, but Barry was the one who, who sat down in 1853 and he actually made a list of significant books and authors he felt this library should have. And that letter was sent to the agent general in London and Barry commissioned them with finding a a book dealer in London who could supply the library. When the library opened in February 1856, uh, in fact the night before it opened, Barry was still up there himself unpacking the books. He was a really kind of hands-on character in that way when it came to the the running of this place and the growth of this place. And he was also responsible for soliciting enormous numbers of donations to this library. He solicited donations from the King of Prussia, Napoleon III, um, he, he would go hat in hand to, to dignitaries. And part of his role, in a way, was, was a kind of mission to, to advance, I guess, the culture of Victoria. I mean, at the time the library was founded, it was just post the Gulf Hills. Melbourne was a, a wealthy city in some ways. But at the same time, the population had absolutely grown enormously in three or four years. And I guess a lot of uh, rough-and-tumble kind of people had hit the Gulf Hills. And so Barry's mission in many ways was to ensure that 
Victorians had a library that would both educate, elevate, and also give them the kind of tools to be a kind of significant colony, not just within Australia, but internationally. Is it right that before the State Library existed, he was opening up his own personal library to the public? Yeah, he had his own book collection. He'd allow people to come, you know, in the evening to look at his books. And, and one of the critical things about Barry is that he would boast that this was a free public library. And this was pretty unique worldwide. And, and pretty much anyone uh, over the 14 years of age uh, could enter the library free and use any of the material which they could get on the shelves themselves. Um, and I think the only proviso was that they used the hand basin to wash their hands in the uh, library's foyer at the time. But outside of that, he, he really... He believed in, in free education uh, and the library was very much predicated around that idea that all Victorians had access to, um, to their free public library. And as I said, that was an uncommon idea at the time. It was quite a radical idea and it's still an idea that we foster today. In 1866, Melbourne hosted the Intercolonial Exhibition of Australasia. The Royal Exhibition Building, still standing in Carlton Gardens, was not yet built so construction began on the Great Hall at the State Library. Barry was a great speechmaker, so when they were building the Great Hall, which was going to be the centrepiece for the exhibition, he actually believed and spoke of it as one of the, the great wonders of architecture in the world, likening it to the great cathedrals in Europe, which was probably a bit of overkill at the time. But Barry's speech, he gave, he gave a speech to the, the workers of the Great Hall. Uh, I think there were some 600 workers assembled for his speech. And if we look at actually the publication of that speech, it runs to something like 40 closely typed pages going through the entire history of architecture of Europe from the Romans onwards. And, and to me, it's almost unimaginable to think of these kind of 600 workers who'd probably put in an incredibly hard day being herded into this uh, space to listen to Barry for what must have gone on for some hours. But it got a big hurrah in the papers at the time. And in fact, uh, one of the newspapers published it, you know, in full. But uh, I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been there, and my endeavour to, to even read the 40 pages has failed on many occasions. As part of his role on the commission for the exhibition, Barry proposed the publication of a vocabulary of dialects spoken by the Aboriginal people of Australia, an Indigenous dictionary. There had been other language books prior to this, but he had a notion of drawing a lot of that together but also doing it in a really systematic way. And to that end, he sent an open letter to all the um, colonies or states of Australia, inviting them to, in fact, fill out a word list he'd constructed, send them back, and this would become part of the publication. He came up with about 700 common terms. Uh, and when we look at it, we see words for sort of, you know, man, woman, child, arm, leg, words that would be in every, every language. And this is a very important item now, of course, because much of these languages have been lost over time. And here we have a kind of recording of it made in 1866. The document is a huge pamphlet of six sheets, full of words in English, French and many different Aboriginal languages from around Australia. The publication was delayed, possibly because Barry, through various politics of the time, resigned in a huff from the commission for the exhibition. It didn't come out until May 1867, which was too late for the 1866 exhibition. It was in time for the French exhibition, and the fact that we've also got French editions of this work indicates that it was obviously intended for that, but there's no record, in fact, in the exhibition catalogues that this was ever shown. And it became actually an incredibly rare pamphlet which was little known. It was not recorded in the standard bibliographies of Australiana, 
And until a few years ago, very, very few libraries had a copy of this, except strangely that the library here, buried in a kind of basement in boxes, we literally had some hundreds of them. So it appears in a way that there was almost no distribution at the time, that this labour of love, I guess, that Barry um, assembled, worked on, believed in, received almost no notice in the day. Barry's influence on Melbourne's cultural institutions didn't end at the State Library. Michael Cathcart. I think of Melbourne as a peculiarly liberal city. He's one of the giant figures in establishing that idea of the city as cosmopolitan, tolerant and liberal, a city where arts and ideas are prominent. And Barry is an absolute giant in establishing that as a norm in Melbourne. And he's steeped in European culture. He's driven by a thirst for knowledge for his new country. And that's why he sets up a library. He sets up what is now the National, uh, the National Gallery of Victoria. He's instrumental in founding and running and building the university. He's founded the Mechanics Institute, which is now the the Athenaeum. Everywhere you look, there are institutions that are dedicated to knowledge, to inquiry, and to a code of Western civilization which Barry upheld and which Barry himself was instrumental in establishing. Nicole Litgo. I would say that Redmond Barry is very important to Melbourne as a whole because when he got here, he was very keen on Melbourne, Victoria, the district of Port Phillip, the mm. colony, not being a place where you send convicts. And he was big on it being a civilised society and he felt it was his duty to civilise the society. So many others make their money by going and, you know, seizing large swathes of, of Victoria and being squatters and landowners. Joanne Boyd. And he could have done that, but clearly he wasn't no farmer. But So he's here in, in Melbourne creating all of these institutions that Nicole rightly says gives you this civilised society. He was very big on educating people less fortunate than himself and he really felt that it was his duty to bring these civilising influences into um, the infant colony, which perhaps didn't have a lot of civilising influences at the time. He was an early member of the Melbourne Club, so he's really involved in these gentlemanly, civilised pursuits. Speaking of the Melbourne Club, uh, one of my favourite stories of Barry involves someone he met at the club, a man by the name of Peter Snodgrass. Snodgrass seemed to have been, can you believe his name? Snodgrass seemed to be one of those people that had a bit of a temper on him. Barry was always considered very gentlemanly and very polite, and Willis, the uh, first resident judge was really pretty rude, but it was only ever Barry that could sweet talk him from the bar table, apparently. But anyway, Snodgrass had taken offence to something that Barry had or hadn't done and demanded a duel. I think this was coming off a duel he'd had previously. Snodgrass, not Barry. Yes, you heard right. Barry had gotten himself into a duel. Were duels a common thing back then? Duels were terribly common in Melbourne, yes. Michael Cathcart. The centre of duelling in Melbourne was the Melbourne Club. Now, today we think of the Melbourne Club as a rather austere, exclusive place where gentlemen of conservative attitudes and considerable means gather. But back in Barry's day, the Melbourne Club was really a watering hole for squatters who came up to town from the bush, but also for 
leery uh, young gentleman. I think of it as being a bit like the junior common room in an exclusive university college. So there are all these young red bloods who see themselves as a cut above everybody else, who are mimicking the manners of England, who are constantly getting drunk and picking fights with each other and then deciding that they will resolve their differences at dawn in a duel. And it's really about sort of ruling class theatrics among the, the kind of young men who today would tear around in, you know, a Mercedes-Benz sports car. So yes, Barry did fight as you all. And he dressed rather splendidly for it. Barry dressed up in what was described as a peculiarly fabricated bell topper, strap-trousered, whatever that is, swallow-coated, white-vested, he had gloves, he had a cravat, so he really dressed for the role. While Barry certainly dressed for the occasion, the duel ended somewhat anticlimactically. While fiddling with his pistol, Peter Snodgrass prematurely fired the gun into the ground, leaving Barry with the only live round. Barry sportingly fired off harmlessly in, in a different direction and, and Honor was satisfied. And that was how most duels ended. No one really got, got hurt. It was all just a lot of silly ruling class theatrics. Was Barry religious? The thing you've got to understand about Barry is that he came from a military family of British Anglicans and they were a staunch part of what's sometimes called the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland, a class of British landlords who derived their wealth from Irish Catholic tenants and agricultural workers. So he's bringing that patrician worldview to Melbourne. But what he was free of was the sort of sectarian division he'd grown up with in Ireland, the conflict between Catholics and Protestants. He didn't hold with that at all. It's really interesting to think of comparing with Stahl, his, his exact contemporary, who was the Chief Justice, who was also Anglo-Irish. Apparently they may have vaguely known each other in Ireland, but they had a pretty interesting um, men about town life in the 1840s before the gold rush. And then Stahl got married to, I think, the bishop's niece or something like that, and he was much more um, focused on the Church of England and everything like that. Barry doesn't seem to have been particularly religious. He believed in those secular civilising things rather than the religious. Because, of course, he had what in those days was a real problem, is that he didn't marry and lived with Mrs Barrow. And he had four kids with Mrs Barrow. He kept her in a little house, was it in Brunswick Street, Nicole? Fitzroy, Brunswick Street, Street Fitzroy. Fitzroy. yes, which was quite convenient because he was living in Rathdown Street, Carlton, so he could sort of cross the park and visit Mrs Barrow. So that although he kept her in a separate circumstance, she came and nursed him when he was sick. He left her all the money. His, their children live with him. But the... To go back to the religious point again, so his eldest son, Nicholas Barry, was meant to go to Melbourne Grammar, but the bishop wasn't having that because poor old Nicholas was illegitimate. So, in fact, he went down to school in Launceston. And I'll take them in Launceston. <laughs> yeah, they obviously would take him in Launceston. While Barry was hugely influential on Melbourne becoming the city it is today, as a judge, he also heard some of the biggest cases of the time. 
In December 1854, only a couple of years into the Victorian gold rush, thousands of miners from across the world had descended on Ballarat to test their luck. Tensions between the miners and the government were on the brink of boiling over. The miners were unhappy with the fees being charged for gold mining licences, as well as various other harsh things that the troopers down at Ballarat and Bakery Hill were, were doing. Eventually, tensions bubbled over. On the 3rd of December 1854, the miners built a stockade, which is basically not much more than a fence, really, but that was seen as an act of violence. The troopers came up in the, the middle, troopers, of the, in the yeah. middle of the night so that some of the stockade wasn't particularly occupied yeah. during the period. And the um, troops had come up from Melbourne and they started firing and it, all hell broke out. It is Australia's one and only armed uprising. And because we are a fairly laid-back nation, our big armed uprising lasts for 34 minutes. <laughs> there is no 100 years war. There's no civil wars. There's 35 minutes of uh, chaos and mayhem uh, between these miners and the troopers. It's quite crazy. And then they do eventually disperse. Well, not for eventually, after 34 minutes. Um, they're on the run. 13 of them are rounded up. At least 22 miners and six soldiers were killed during the conflict. Less than three months later, the 13 arrested miners faced trial for their part in what is now commonly known as the Eureka Stockade. There were so much tensions about it that they didn't do these on the Ballarat goldfields. They brought them back down here to Melbourne. So it was in the old courthouse at the corner of Russell and Latrobe Streets. And Barry, as well as Chief Justice Beckett, presided over these trials. There was a huge public gallery and they were all partisan for the people that were on trial. Quite a few lawyers that had turned up during the goldfields all of a sudden decided they wanted to be lawyers again and were appearing for people. The prosecution was led by the Attorney General at the time, Sir William Foster Stall, who decided to charge the rebels with high treason, a crime punishable by death. Two years later, Stall would be appointed Chief Justice of Victoria a position he held for 29 years. It was Stahl who drew up these penalties and they were seen as being treasonous because they had risen up against the Crown and were demanding better rights and they'd rioted and everything like that. The first person to bring to trial, the first person that he prosecutes is actually an African-American person by the name of John Joseph. Now, as I say, he's charged them with high treason, which is a very high bar, and he brings him to trial first strategically because he believes that the jury will have no trouble convicting a black man. He's mistaken, and the jury do have trouble convicting a black man, and uh, they actually acquit him to the jubilation of the crowd. So the subsequent trials all fall over fairly quickly after that. It really doesn't last very long. William Beckett does those first two trials, and then Barry does the subsequent 11, um, and, and yes, they, all, they are all acquitted. Michael Cathcart. It's not Barry who finds the, the men not guilty. That's, that's a jury uh, who does that. But Barry, all the way through, is making sure that the trial is conducted impeccably and with the result that liberal values become the norm in Melbourne. The idea that you could demonstrate against the government, that you could stand up for democracy, for individual rights, that you could speak truth to power, all of those ideals are at stake in the Eureka Stockade trial and he's the judge who oversaw that process. I like to think that the fair go that Australia used to be famous for actually has its beginnings in the courtroom on those days. 
I hereby sentence you to death by hanging. May God have mercy on your soul. There have been more words written about Ned Kelly than any other Australian. And he is possibly the most famous Australian ever. He's just 25 when he's executed, but I'll let you go first. One of the things to remember at the the trial is it's not actually about the Glen Rowan matter. So Glen Rowan is the siege at Glen Rowan. The pub's burnt down. They're going to derail a train. Ned loses his whole gang. You know, his brother, one of them dies terribly in the fire and another is killed as well. He himself was injured, but, you know, because he's got his famous armour on, he's shot in the legs. And so there was a slight delay about them actually even doing the trial because they had to wait until he was better. They had the preliminary trial up in Beechworth and then they came back down here to Melbourne feeling that that would be a better place for the trial. But what... Ned was being tried on was the murder of the police officer Lonigan at Stringy Bark Creek. I mean, they could have thrown the book at him, but they just went with this one thing that they felt was incontrovertible. Some people say that Ned was acting in self-defence. Other people say it's a cold-blooded execution of a police officer going about his duty. So the trial was that time was a couple of days. Ned was considered to have a relatively inexperienced barrister because one of the Molesworths was asking too much money, Hickman Molesworth. So the trial takes place in the old courthouse at the corner of Russell and Latrobe Streets, which is no longer there, adjacent to the old Melbourne jail. The trial takes place in October 1880, and I think nearly every Australian is familiar with the outcome. The jury finds Ned guilty and he is sentenced by Sir Redmond Barry. The sentence is death and he was executed on November the 11th. So within a very rapid space of time. Redmond Barry's book with his sentence remarks is on display in the Supreme Court Library, which in a move I'm sure Barry would support is now open to the public. But what a lot of Australians likely don't know is that Ned's and Barry's deaths will forever be linked. After announcing Kelly's fate, death by hanging, Barry uttered the customary words, May God have mercy on your soul. To which Kelly replied, I'll go a little further than that and say I'll see you there where I go. So Kelly's executed on the 11th of November. Within 10 days, Barry himself is dead, dies in his home in East Melbourne of a a boil or a carbuncle, but the general thing for the medical experts now is he probably had diabetes, undiagnosed diabetes, which he couldn't do anything about in the early 1880s. So, so that's kind of how they've inextricably been entwined. And some people say that that Barry didn't give him a fair go. Other people are saying it's it's not very different from any other trial that you might have heard in the 19th century. Michael Cathcart. The astonishing thing about Barry is that for all his largesse, all his generosity with his time and expertise, he died poor. He didn't hoard money for himself. He gave what he had to Melbourne. And today we are still the richer for his generosity. What kind of reputation did Barry have as a judge? Well, Barry was a conservative judge. He, he applied the law as it was written. He wasn't an inventive judge. And I don't think you'll find any legal experts who regard him as a particularly brilliant jurist. He could be pompous in the way he delivered his judgments. He did have a a fine sense of his own importance and standing. 
So you have to weigh that against his liberal influence. But I, I think his liberal influence is found more in the contribution he made to the civic institutions of Melbourne than it is in the judgments that he delivered from the bench. It's easy to misjudge Barry because that statue of him that stands outside the library looks so self-important and arrogant. One of his contemporaries was a writer and newspaper man named Edmund Finn who wrote one of the early histories of Melbourne um, under the uh, pseudonym Gary Owen and he said that Barry was, this is the quote, the most remarkable personage in the annals of Port Phillip. He threw in his lot with the destiny of the province when it was a weak and struggling settlement in 1839 and identified himself with every stage of its wonderful progress until he left it a bright and brilliant colony in 1880. And before I let you go, here's Nicole Lithgow with quite a personal story about Barry. So way back in 1841, not long after the Supreme Court first sat, there was a young Irish girl in Keeler and she found herself in a very close relationship with a very slippery character by the name of William O'Neill, who had come out to Australia as a convict, but in the end ended up as the police sergeant in Keeler. The relationship must have been quite close because she found herself pregnant and uh, unmarried. William agreed to marry her, but on the morning of the wedding breakfast, he uh, decided no and locked himself in the police cells. Bridget was understandably pretty upset about this and rather than just let it go, she engaged the up and coming barrister, Redmond Barry, to represent her in a breach of promise, a suit that she brought against William. And it was in fact the first suit of that kind in the colony of Victoria. The case was brought before Judge John Walpole Willis in the Supreme Court in November of 1841, uh, and it made for some very salacious reporting in the newspapers. Barry must have done a great job because Judge Willis found for Bridget and awarded her 100 pounds damages, which was a huge amount of money in those days. In April of 1842, Bridget was still pregnant and William had not paid her the money he owed her for the breach of promise. So uh, rather than do so, he thought it would be easier just to marry her, which he did on the 9th of April, 1842. Two days later, their daughter Mary was born. Two years later, they had a second child called Sarah. Now Sarah is my great-great-grandmother and uh, I believe that if Redmond Barry hadn't won that case, Sarah wouldn't have been born, and so I wouldn't have come into being. So I'm a very big fan of Redmond Barry. Gertie's Law is produced by the Supreme Court of Victoria. The rather pompous piece of piano music you've been listening to is called Le Bon Voyage Waltz and was composed for Sir Redmond Barry by C.J. Dawson in the 1800s. While the sheet music has been sitting in the State Library of Victoria for over a century, we think this might be the first time it has ever been recorded. 
Thanks to our producer, Greg Muller, for taking to the keys of the Supreme Court Library's grand piano. If you have a question you'd like to ask a judge or someone else at the court, send them in to gertie at subcourt.vic.gov.au. That's G-E-R-T-I-E at S-U-P-C-O-U-R-T dot vic.gov.au. Thanks for listening.